Welcome back to Episode 6, Season 2 of the Learning Curve Podcast at Edmonton Catholic Schools. We are thrilled to have you join us today. Our special guest is Dr. Jesse Wilcox, an assistant professor at the University of Northern Iowa. In this episode, we dive into meaningful connections between teachers and research, inquiry-based pedagogy, standards-based assessment, and the transformative power of questions in guiding and revealing student learning. Before we begin, let's pause for reflection. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, dear God, we seek your wisdom and guidance. Grant us the insight to prioritize the humanity of our students and foster an environment where each student feels valued. May the words in this podcast inspire fellow educators, and may we approach our classrooms with empathy and understanding. Bless us with patience and resilience on this journey of nurturing positive learning environments. In the spirit of growth and learning, we offer this prayer. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that we are recording today on the traditional land of Treaty 6, the ancestral territory of Indigenous peoples. We pay tribute to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 4 and the enduring contributions of Indigenous communities to this land. With gratitude, we honour their wisdom and resilience. As a united community, let us engage with the diverse peoples who call this land home. May our interactions be guided by positivity, celebrating the richness of Indigenous cultures, and working towards reconciliation through respect, empathy, and collaboration. May our journey be marked by humility, compassion, and a shared commitment to truth and understanding. Now let's delve into the agenda for today's episode. First up, we'll have Jennifer's Learning Lab. She will explore the world of neuroscience, unraveling the power of activating prior knowledge. Then, our interview with Dr. Jesse Wilcox will share insights on connecting teachers meaningfully to research, inquiry-based pedagogy, and standards-based assessment through a science lens. Tracy will lead the Mindset Matters segment, focusing on the importance of teacher mindset and its impact on student learning and the assessment process. And last but not least, Allison will guide us through Lit Literature, featuring the book The Teacher Clarity Playbook by Fisher Frey Amador and Aesop, delving into how it shapes effective teaching practices. That's all for today. Let's jump right in. Welcome to The Learning Lab, where we dive deep into the magic of learning. I'm your host, Jennifer, and today we're talking about how linking what you already know can boost your learning. Let's delve into how activating prior knowledge can unleash a tidal wave of learning. Remember when learning was easier because it was connected to something you already knew? That's our brain making pathways. Neuroscientists call this priming. When we think of what we already know about a topic, our brain lights up, reactivating and strengthening existing neural connections, preparing to take in new information. In other words, by activating prior knowledge, we create a fertile ground for new learning to take root. Our memories Our brain's memory center, the hippocampus, helps in this. It retrieves related information from long-term memory storage, pulling out related memories, strengthening old and new connections, leading to better understanding. Plus, our brain's problem-solving area, the prefrontal cortex, kicks in, engaging in higher-order cognitive processing that helps us connect dots and think critically. Want to tap into this brain magic in the classroom? Try one of these. First, 
Anticipation guides. Provide students with a set of statements related to the upcoming topic or reading. Ask them to indicate whether they agree or disagree with each statement based on their existing knowledge. This activity primes their thinking and prepares them to engage with the new information. Then you can come back later and see how their understanding has changed after going through the learning. Number two, Analogies and metaphors. Present students with analogies or metaphors that relate to the new topic. Ask them to explain how the analogy or metaphor connects to their existing knowledge. This approach activates prior knowledge and helps students make connections between familiar concepts and new information. And third, concept mapping. Encourage students to create concept maps that visually represent their existing knowledge and how different concepts are interconnected. This strategy activates prior knowledge and helps students visualize relationships between ideas, fostering a deeper understanding of the subject. By intentionally activating prior knowledge, we leverage the brain's natural architecture for learning and optimize educational outcomes. As neural connections strengthen and prior knowledge is woven into new information, students develop a solid foundation of understanding, enabling them to grasp complex concepts more effectively, ultimately resulting in more success for more students. With that, dear listeners, let me leave you with one final point to ponder until our next episode. How might you harness the power of activating prior knowledge and transform your classroom to empower your students to connect the dots and watch their understanding grow? Let us know in the comments. Welcome to another episode of the Learning Curve podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Jesse Wilcox. Welcome. Thank you. Tell us a bit about your background and what led you to pursue a career in education. Sure. Yeah. So I've always been interested in science, uh, even from a young child, like natural world fascinated me. My grandparents always told the story about how I would always try and find the moon and point to it, even as a young child. So I've always really loved science. Um, and I found out later that I really wanted to serve people when I was in high school, but I didn't really know what that meant. And so when I got to college, I was in biology and I went home over Christmas break or holiday break. And uh, my sister was struggling with her physical science homework and I helped her with it. She's like, I finally understand it. And so uh, I was like, oh, man, that was great. So I went back to college the next semester and changed my major to be a teacher. And so that was a, a great career as a high school teacher. I taught general science, which is like a physical and earth science combination we had. And uh, my and then I taught biology as well. And I was working with student teachers a lot. My professor from college sent a lot of teachers to me, and I really liked working with pre-service teachers and helping them learn. So uh, I decided to pursue a PhD, and that's what I do now. So now I work at the University of Northern Iowa, and, I'm, and I teach teachers. Amazing. Can you tell us a bit more about that work that you're currently engaged in? Yeah, so uh, it's so I'm I'm work I work in a couple different areas. So my job is partially educating. So I teach um, biology courses, and I also teach people um, how to teach secondary science. I teach people, I teach people how to teach um, elementary science. So that's kind of uh, my main background. And research is kind of similar. So I, I have the luxury of having a lot of connections between research and practice. So what I'm trying to do is help teachers understand how do you take this research and apply it to like everyday teaching. And then I'm kind of also working on uh, teacher persistence. Like uh, we know teachers leave. How do we get them to stay? And what's what's common about the teachers that have been around for a long time? I've also been looking at teacher advocacy and, and student learning. So those are kind of my, my research areas and uh, areas I look at. Wonderful. Those will be very applicable to our conversation today and of interest to a lot of teachers in our school board here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So um, from all this work, what are some global themes that are emerging in your research and how do they impact 
classroom teachers? Sure. Well, in the United States, and I'm sure this is probably true in Canada as well, we've had a lot of science teachers that uh, haven't been persisting. So in the U.S., we've had 50% of science teachers leave in the first five years, um, and they're moving to other jobs. And so we know why they leave. It's what has to do with working conditions, and uh, it's a tough job. Teaching is amazing, but it's also challenging. And so um, that research has been done. We know that we've known that for a long time, but I wanted to kind of spin the question. So what about those good teachers? What about those teachers that have been there and they're really effective? Like what, what keeps them staying teaching? That's, that's kind of what I wanted to know. And so a lot of that isn't too terribly surprising, but I think really interesting. And the one thing that I found is they, they view it as like a calling or a moral act. So they view teaching as something that they, it's not, it's not just a job for them. It's a profession. It's something that they want to keep getting better at. And so uh, where that comes from, though, is just all over the place. It's very personal. So some people do that because they have a service mindset, and that's how they think about teaching, and that's how they think about their life. Some people want to do this ecologically, like we need to think about climate change, and we need to think about um, you know our resources and, and uh, species that are becoming extinct and how to help them. And, so, um, and some of them are religious. So it's just it's really all over the place. One of them said that uh, she didn't want to teach how her teachers taught. So all, and all that is to say, like, it's very personal, but they all share this, like, deep desire to help children become better. And so um, related to that, they constantly try and get better. So they're going to professional development, they're seeking out learning, they're reading a lot of things, they're, they're trying to become the best that they can. And they're trying to have great relationships with students and not just say that they want great relationships, but they show students that they care about them in strategic ways and consistent ways. Um, they, and then, and then on the other side, like they feel, they need to feel supported. If they want to keep going, you know, they need to feel like they have a support network that's uplifting them. That's, that's making them feel wanted in the profession. And they need to have the autonomy to make decisions that they feel are best, um, that are backed up of course, by research, but they need to feel like they have the space to, to make good decisions. And so that's kind of what we're finding out about teacher persistence. Like if they have those elements, they're more likely to persist than, than the teachers they may not. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing in that that there's a love of learning that's also probably a motivator for for some some of these teachers or some teachers. Um and I think it connects with this article that I've read of yours that was published in 2022. It's called Learning to Learn: Drawing Students' Attention to the Ideas About Learning and you co-wrote it with uh, Jared Cruz and Jacqueline Easter and we'll have it linked in the episode description for our listeners. But could you give us a brief summary of this article and uh, what prompted you to to write it? Sure, sure. So this started many years ago. I was teaching and I was doing the best I can. And I was trying to do my best for kids. And a lot of them were participating. A lot of them were engaged, but not all of them. Right. So like sometimes I just couldn't get every kid all the time to participate, to be engaged. And I wondered why, like I'm smiling, I'm trying to do engaging activities. Like I talk to them, I'm trying to build relationships. Like, what is it? Like, why are some kids not participating? And so my colleague Jared and I tried to find out. And so what we found is that uh, there's some common factors that are just, you know, everyday things, right? Like there was a student who had to take care of his little brother and he was exhausted. You know, there's just, there's just things that happen in kids' lives that, that, make it hard to fully engage in school. But the thing that we found that, could, that we could impact directly was how kids thought about learning. So if they view learning as I memorize and the teacher tells me, I memorize it and I tell you back, that's a very different view of learning than if they view learning as social and I have to construct knowledge and I have to make sense of things actively and I have to keep trying to get better at it. And so 
if they have that sort of view, they're going to be more likely to do well in science because that's what we want them to do. But they're also going to be um, more likely to participate in class. And so you have a better community then. And so what we did, that was kind of the start of that article. And so what we did was we found out like what are kids views and and how can we fix that? And, and some kids have very accurate views and some kids don't. It just depends on their development and their experience. So one of the things we noticed is if kids think that learning should be quick, like I should just be able to see it, learn it, know it, and then move on, right? Like that's that's more troubling than if they if they think learning is complex and it takes time. Or if they think the source of knowledge comes from a teacher versus like, I have to make sense of this. It has to make sense to me. Um, that's kind of what we're trying to do. And then ability from rather like some, something more fixed kind of is related to Dweck's like mindset. So more of a fixed, like I'm just good at this or I'm not versus like I can get better. So these are the kind of, we're trying to get them to have more accurate views about learning. And so in that particular article, we wrote about some strategies that we have to do that. And so one of them is asking explicit and reflective questions. This comes from the nature of science, but we just co-opted it for learning. It works well for that too. So we want to point out to them, like you did some really hard work. Like how, why was it good for you to engage in this so long and keep going with it? Why was that good for your learning? Or like, I'm asking you to participate. Why do you think we do that? Like, why do you think I have you talk in your groups? Like, how does that help you learn? So these little, you know, explicit reflective questions that you ask kids can really help them. Then sometimes like another strategy would be to compare work, right? So like, let's, let's take something from the beginning of the unit and the end of the unit and like, look at your, look at the difference. Like you've grown so much. So like have them actually compare what they've done previously and what they've done later to help them see if they actually have grown, they actually have learned. Um, sometimes they don't necessarily reflect on that, right? Like it's, it's just, they just, they just know they know it now. Um, so showing them that progression is useful. And then the role of feedback, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later, but the role of feedback I think is really important as well in terms of like, how do I, how do I craft feedback in a way that gets them to keep wanting to get better? So those are some strategies that we wrote about in the article that we think about, like trying to get kids to think about learning more accurately uh, so that they learn deeply. Wonderful. Um, wh what you're saying is connecting to what uh, our assessment and reporting team, as we go out as consultants and provide PD for teachers, we always talk about assessment for and as, and and how that's really the cycle of feedback and learning. And we've often taken the approach of of these these beliefs that you outline in the article um, from the teacher's perspective. So teachers need to believe that learning requires understanding. They need to believe that learning takes time. It requires complexity and challenge. Everyone can learn. And learning is personal and social. And that's quoted from page 110 from the article. But what I find so interesting is that you approached it from the student's perspective. And I think that's a key piece to making assessment for and as actually live is if students know why and how and what is learning as well. Yeah, I think that's I think that's crucial. Right. And you pointed out, I mean, if a teacher doesn't have accurate views, that's that's, you know, that's the place to start. Um but yeah, I think I think that uh, student like listening to your students is has been really crucial in my own career. Like I, I've gained valuable insights and in really just listening to what they struggle with, what they think uh, and, and how they're making sense of things. Yeah. So in I've read a couple other of your articles that are more focused on science pedagogy and science learning. Yeah. And a theme that comes up is inquiry learning. Uh, could you provide a definition of inquiry learning? And then how does it relate to uh, your previous article, Learning to Learn? How does it help support sure. learning to learn? Yeah. So what, I think one of the challenges with the word inquiry is it, is it means a lot of different things. And so, and so I'll try and tell you what I think about it. So uh, teaching science through inquiries may be 
the better phrase that I think about because it, it kind of helps us focus on the teaching part of it. And so really what that is, is just teaching moves that you're making to trying to get kids to think and act like scientists. So we're just trying to get them to 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 do science, right, by by making certain teaching moves. And so there's pedagogical decisions that we make that we're trying to promote, you know, students engaging in science and engineering practices. Uh, that's that's really what teaching science their inquiry is. I mean, I think your next question was, how is it related to learning? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so like, I think those things go really hand in hand, right? Like if we want kids to learn how to, if we want kids to learn science, we actually have to engage them, right? right. So we have to get them to ask questions. We have to get them to analyze data. We have to get them to reflect on their learning. We have to get them to, you know, um, to graph things and try and, and, and try and like conceptualize and, and all these things that we do as science teachers. Well, that is all, that's how scientists learn. That's also how they learn. Right. So we want to align those things together, like how scientists go about learning about the natural world is very, very similar to how students go about learning generally. And so if we can bridge those gaps, right, if we can if we can make teaching more like what science is like and if we can make teaching more reflective of what good learn, like what learning means to me, that's that's the way to to really help kids grow. Could you provide a, a lesson framework that you would typically use to to structure this? Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of different frameworks that you can use with inquiry. They have a lot of overlap. And so the most common one, at least in the United States right now, is the is the five E. And so those so you have those five different parts, like you engage the students first with with the phenomena or something, something to like kind of pique their interest. And then they explore something, they're doing something in the natural world, you know, they're actually doing something. And then you're helping them explain it. So once they once they've had the experience, then you're helping them explain it. And this is really an equity piece too, right? So some students may have more experience than others. So you're giving all the kids an experience, and then they can um, together talk about what that experience means. And then you're elaborating. So you're trying to get them to apply what they've learned into a new situation. And then of course the route you're evaluating. So so an inquiry model that you could use is the five E. There are others that are very similar. So the five E came out in the in the early 1990s from. BSCS, which is like Biological Sciences Curriculum Study, I think is what that means. Um, and so, but it, it was a pre, there was a precursor to it that came out in the '60s by Carplus and Atkins. And so that's that's the learning cycle, which is also very good. It's just three phases instead. So it's it's just basically the the um, explorers first, and then concept development, where you're trying to help kids understand the concept and then apply it. So they're taking their learning and trying to apply it to a new situation. So a lot of similarities between the learning cycle and the five E because they're related. The five E came from the learning cycle. And more recently, math is onto something that I think is kind of interesting that that we might be able to use in science, and that's that's launch, explore, summarize. So that's actually very similar to the five E as well. The launch is very similar to the engage, and then explore is the middle ones exploring, and then summarizing and concept development. So like all three of those um, types of models can really help kids make sense of things, and they're all very much related. It's just kind of a different different flavor of what you're doing, and so it really depends on the content you're teaching. To me, which one makes the most sense? Um, but they're all very effective, and they all promote inquiry quite well. Sounds very different from a traditional framework of teaching. If if I think back to my own experience in in middle school and high school, often the teacher would stand at the front of the room and they'd say, "Okay, this is what we're learning today," and they'd launch into a PowerPoint presentation uh, for the forty five minutes to ninety minutes that we were together. Um, so this, I, I I'm hearing that there's a a release of control that needs to happen for it to occur. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think I think really the big the biggest shift maybe is um, so starting with the experience. So you're getting kids to to experience something, and then you're trying together 
as a partnership, the teacher and the student make sense of that experience. So if a teacher is asking questions and trying to help kids understand what that experience means and connect it to a deep science concept. And so it is a release of control in a sense, but I find it to be more exhilarating. So uh, so when you're when you're interacting with kids, you, you know, period one is not the same as period three. You know, <laughs> like so when you're teaching different groups of kids, it feels different because there's different kids in there and they give different ideas. And you have to think about, OK, so they said this. How am I going to connect this to the big idea? So I find it um, much more engaging than than standing up and talking because uh, you actually listen to what kids say and, and you're actually thinking about you're excited about their learning. Um, and so, yeah, it's a release of control, but what you gain, uh, I think is so much more valuable. A, a lot of your writing is also on teacher efficacy, if, if I'm correct, and teacher efficacy in, in relation to teaching science. Um, can you speak a bit to how that relates to our conversation? Yeah. I mean, there, there certainly is a connection between feeling like you're able to teach well and actually doing it. Right. So if you, if you don't feel like you're able to do something, it's, it's really hard to get better. And so there is a there is a close connection between efficacy and teaching, but that relationship isn't completely, you know, uh, easy to understand. So there are some teachers who may not teach very well, but they have high self-efficacy. And this relates to like the the Dunning-Kruger effect, which basically is you don't know what you don't know. So um, sometimes there's teachers that like just don't know that they're not they're not really teaching that well. Um, and as they start to realize that that's the case, then their self-efficacy typically drops um, until until they start learning how to teach and then their self-efficacy rises again. So so there is a there is a relationship between self-efficacy and teaching, but it, it kind of depends on the person what that relationship is. Sometimes um, they have a higher efficacy than they should. And sometimes they're highly correlated, like they're really good at teaching and they have high self-efficacy. And sometimes their teaching is good. They just haven't like they don't believe it yet. And so there's kind of this progression that happens to people over time. And I think that's, you know, kind of where I think your role comes in is supporting people no matter where they are in that journey towards believing that they can do it, taking the small steps, um, putting themselves out there, risk taking, trying a small thing and seeing if it works. So uh, to me, I think that's, that's, that's our goal for teachers is to, you know, keep learning, keep trying, try something small. If it doesn't work. Keep trying, you know, try something new. So, um, and, and try your best to, to believe in yourself. And I think that's back to what I was talking about with persistence and support networks. Having that support is really useful in figuring out where to go next, but also sticking with it when things get hard. Yeah. And giving yourself grace uh, in front of your students that, hey, I'm trying something new and it's not going to be perfect. And we can communicate that with students as well and let them know that we're trying something new. I don't know what's going to happen, but if you can join me in this journey, that would be helpful to to my own growth as a teacher. That's a great point. Rosalind Driver, who I really expect or really respect as was a science researcher. And she said, like, when teachers try new things, it almost de-skills them in a way, right? So they get worse before they get better. And so I think, I think, you know, helping students understand that you're trying to get better uh, and letting them in on it, I think is, that, that's a great point. Well, we're going to connect. I think we're going to connect the conversation now to uh, standards. And in Alberta, we call them outcomes. So Inquiry teaching, um, when we're talking to our teachers about it, we, we want them to first start with the learning outcomes. And those are provided to us by the government of Alberta. And when I'm coaching teachers through this, uh, and we're, we're looking at the verb, what do students need to do? And then the concept, 
we're trying to aim for conceptual understanding. So what do students need to understand in the end? Can you speak to your understanding of conceptual understanding and how it fits into inquiry learning? Yeah, I think, you know, that's that's the place to start, right? Like you, you want to know what you want kids to end up with. Um, and so beginning with the end in mind, so to speak, as Stephen Covey would say. So I, th- I think you really want to start with like, what do I want kids to know? And then like, what do they know? And then how do I bridge that gap, right? And so what activities could I use or what, what things could I do that would elicit student thinking that would get them, you know, moving in a certain direction? So for example, like conservation of mass is a good example. A lot of, a lot of kids have misconceptions about the conservation of mass. So we want them to understand that. Uh, they have misconceptions about it. Like, how do we bridge that gap? And so coming up with activities to kind of like help them understand that. For example, you know, like if you just put baking soda and vinegar in a bag, well, some of the, some of it's going to escape. Well, why is it escaping? Or like, why, why is the mass going down? Well, some kids will realize it escapes and some kids will realize, oh, maybe maybe something's or some kids think there's something going on like it just loses mass when you have a chemical reaction so then you can test that so if i put it in a bottle you know like this and seal it uh what's the case then so when it's closed there's no mass change why is that so you know you're kind of using experience to get them to the concept i think is the important thing but you have to know where you're going first um but you're using the students ideas to get there i think that's that's the new spin is is you have that's the inquiry part is you have to listen to what they have to say and guide them in a way that gets them there. And that takes that takes practice. That takes um, content knowledge on the teacher's part. It takes uh, understanding what your students know. And it takes understanding those intermediate steps between what they know and where you want them to go. Um, and so it, it, it takes effort. But I think to me, you know, anything we're doing is we're doing well. And um, I think I think that uh, lifelong learning, like once they learn it, they'll know it. Yeah. Could you offer up some some first steps or maybe a protocol for for planning this way for any teachers interested in in engaging in this process? For sure. Yeah. To me, I think like starting with the standard is a, is a key thing and, and thinking about what do I need to do to build towards that? Um, one one thing I would suggest is writing out questions to, to guide students. Too often, like we really want to help students. And so we, we sometimes are uh, tempted to to give them the answers, right? And it's not because it's it's not because they're a bad teacher or something like that. It's just simply because like we want to help them and we know the answer. Like who wouldn't want to? But the but the trick is like how do we get them to think about it? And so to to help teachers with that, I have found if you know where you're going and you know where they are, you can you can come up with experiences and questions that help them. And so that to me is start with start with the end, start with where you want to go, figure out where what where they're at now, and then what are the what are the experiences and the questions that I could give them and ask them that would help them get bridge the gap between the two? So to me, questioning is really a key part of planning that maybe is most of the plan are the types of questions you're going to ask. Um, and of course, in the activities as well, back to the five E things I was talking about before. So like that sort of structure can kind of help you um, figure out where the experience goes and like what questions I'm going to ask. But but to me, the questioning is something that we really have to think a lot about. I think it's a really interesting way to think about uh, teacher clarity. So what I mean by teacher clarity is taking the the standard or the outcome, writing a learning goal around it, and then some success criteria. But we can yeah. also flip that into inquiry and use our questions as our success criteria yeah. or our scaffolding students into the outcome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, you've also written an article about uh, 
debunking myths about standards-based assessment with Matt uh, Townsley. And uh, that's something that's a big focus in our school board right now is outcomes-based assessment. We have it in elementary school. We fully do it with a four-point scale. In junior high, we have a four-point scale, but we also report percentage grades. And then in high school, we're we're moving into that understanding of what is uh, outcomes-based assessment, or as you know it, standards-based assessment. Can you speak to how that fits into our conversation today? Well, sure. So I got started on this kind of real... So all three of those things fit together, and they should align. And I remember when I was a high school teacher, we did a community service project. The kids had to go do something great for the community. They had to write about how it connected to the science concepts they were learning. They reflected on their learning. I, I mean, like I was impressed with what they came up with and they were proud of it. And that was great. And I spent a ton of time giving them feedback. So I had, I had 150 students and I gave them feedback like within a week and I read their papers and they were, you know, a few pages long. It's quite long for a freshman in high school. And so I read their papers, gave them feedback gave it to him towards the end of class. I was like, I'm so proud of them. And I was like, happy when I got it back to him that fast. And uh, I remember the bell rang and I was standing by the door as I usually do, just saying goodbye to them as they were leaving. And I happened to glance into the recycling bin and there were a bunch of their papers <laughs> in the recycling bin that I had just given them. And there's no way that they read all that feedback and internalized it in that amount of time. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I remember thinking to myself, first and foremost, like, well, at least they recycled, right? Like, at least they're recycling. Um, and then my second thought was, no, why? And that really stuck with me. Why is it that the project was good? The connection to science was good. The feedback was good. What was wrong? The, and and what, it, what it had to do with was the assessment. To the kids, the assessment was over, right? The project was done. The paper was written. The grade was in the grade book. But they had no way to improve. I thought the feedback would kind of help them in their life, but they didn't necessarily see that link. And so to me, that was a huge like moment in my thinking about how do we how do we make assessments where kids actually are taking what I'm writing as feedback to help them get better and use it to get better. And part of that is the reassessment part. And so we need to know kind of what we were just talking about before. We need to know where, we're, where they're going. We need to know how to get them there. We need to give them good feedback that's specific, that points out, like, what did you do really well and what do you need to get better at? But then we also need to give them opportunities to reassess that. And so to me, like all three of those are, they have to fit together. You have to teach in a way that's, that's getting kids to think well. You have to give them feedback that really helps them. And they have to be able to, that feedback needs to be actionable. They have to do something about it so that, so that they can learn and get better. And so to me, that's, that's reflective of what we want students to know and can do this sort of approach um, with with competency-based or, or standards-based grading. Yeah, you, you said it exactly. And and that's would be my team's understanding of outcomes-based is we want to focus on learning. And we really don't want to grade until we absolutely have to. So we, we talk to teachers about focus on collecting evidence of learning, giving that time for students to receive feedback and reapply um, their feedback multiple times. And then as you just focus on learning and focus on that iterative cycle, there'll be a point where you're comfortable putting a grade on on their understanding. For sure. For sure. And to me, that's, you know, it's it's a better communication with parents as well. So it to, you're kind of maximizing those partnerships, right, between yourself, the student and the parent. Like, how can we best support the student in their learning? Um that clear communication is, I think, a benefit of this approach too, but that the kids know what they need to do to get better, and so do the parents. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, I, I think we've covered all the, the questions I had prepared for you uh, at the start of the episode. Is there any other point you'd like to share with us today? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just uh, like, I love teaching and I love science teaching in particular. And I just want to encourage people, you know, as, as much as I can to, to keep to keep going, to keep trying, to keep risk taking, to keep doing what they can for the betterment of your students. So thank you. Thank you. So before we, we wrap up the episode, um, are, talk to us about any of your projects that are going on right now. Any initiatives that you'd like to share or promote? Sure. So uh, one of the things I've been working on lately is um, embedding social emotional learning in lessons. So we want, as I was talking about, we want kids to communicate. We want them to collaborate. We want them to work together to solve problems. You know, and sometimes, you know, when they're young and they're, and they're kids, like working with others is not the easiest thing. Uh, always. So how can we help support that with social emotional learning is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. And how can we help kids become more aware of themselves and their dynamic and their, their contribution to, to the social interactions that they have with others. And so, um, I, I found that to be helpful for them to have that lens on how they can improve not only their learning, but the way that they communicate with others. Wonderful. And the last question that I asked to all guests on the episode is, is quite a big question. So take it how you want is what's a, what's a dream that you have for education? Oof, that is a big question. Yeah, I love it. Um, I think, I think my dream is that all kids first and foremost feel safe. They feel safe uh, physically, but they feel safe emotionally in the classroom. And when they feel that safety, the, hopefully they feel like they can take risks and they can put their ideas out there and they can try things out just to try them out. Um, and we as teachers are able to support that and, and we listen to what they have to say and we try and help them get better. And so to me, I think my dream is a, a safe school where kids are continually growing, continually learning, and uh, they want to be there. What a wonderful dream to have. And I hope that we're on our way to getting there. Me too. I mean, everything, I think to me, it's, you know, it's, it's steps towards that, towards that goal. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast again, uh, Dr. Wilcox. And I'll link in the episode description for our listeners, uh, the two articles mentioned uh, today. Thanks so much. As educators, we often focus on curriculum, lesson plans, and teaching strategies, but we sometimes overlook the powerful impact of our mindset on our students' learning experiences. So let's start by understanding what we mean by teacher mindset. Teacher mindset refers to the collection of beliefs, attitudes, and perspectives that teachers hold about themselves, their students, and the teaching profession as a whole. It's a lens through which educators view their role and interactions in the classroom. While it's easy to underestimate its significance, teacher mindset plays a vital role in shaping the learning environment and ultimately impacting student outcomes. One crucial aspect of teacher mindset is the belief in the potential and capabilities of every student. When teachers believe that all students can succeed, their approach to their instruction is with high expectation and provides the necessary support to help students reach their full potential. This mindset fosters a positive and inclusive learning environment where every student feels valued and capable. Conversely, a fixed mindset can hinder student growth. If a teacher holds the belief that students have an 
innate limitations and cannot develop beyond them, it can inadvertently limit students' progress. A fixed mindset may lead to lower expectations, less effort in adapting teaching strategies, a lack of student engagement and learning, and missed opportunities for student development. Now let's consider how a growth mindset can transform teaching practices. When teachers embrace a growth mindset, they view challenges as opportunities for learning, both for themselves and for their students. They foster a classroom culture that encourages risk-taking, resilience, and perseverance. By modeling and promoting a growth mindset, teachers inspire their students to adopt the same mindset and develop a love for learning. It is important to note that a teacher's mindset doesn't operate in isolation. It interacts with other factors such as school culture, community support, and professional development opportunities. However, teachers have the agency to shape their mindset and continuously refine it through self-reflection, seeking feedback, and engaging in professional learning. To cultivate a positive teacher mindset, educators can engage in practices like mindfulness, self-care, and professional learning. These practices support teachers in maintaining a healthy and balanced perspective, which in turn benefits their students. By fostering a positive teacher mindset, teachers can create an environment where every student can thrive academically, socially, and emotionally. The Teacher Clarity Playbook. The Teacher Clarity Playbook for grades K to 12 by Douglas Fisher, Nancy Frey, Olivia Amador, and Joseph Asoff is an indispensable tool for educators seeking to enhance their instruction and boost student achievement. The authors expertly guide readers through the process of creating clear learning intentions and success criteria, which are two critical components of effective teaching and learning. At the heart of the book is the concept of teacher clarity, which refers to the teacher's ability to clearly communicate learning intentions, success criteria, and learning progressions to students. Research has consistently shown that when teachers have clarity about what students are expected to learn and can effectively convey this to students, student achievement improves significantly. They argue that when students understand the learning goals and the criteria for success, they're more likely to take ownership of their learning. The author delves into this concept, providing a robust theoretical understanding, along with practical steps to achieve it. A must for all our book reviews is that this handbook stands out for its practicality and applicability. The authors provide clear step-by-step -step guides to creating learning intentions and success criteria. This includes examples from various subjects and grade levels, allowing teachers to see how the concept can be implemented in diverse contexts. The book's hand-on approach makes it an invaluable resource for educators looking to enhance their instructional practices immediately. The Teacher Clarity Playbook is a practical and insightful resource that can significantly enhance instructional effectiveness and student achievement. It provides a clear roadmap to creating well-defined learning intentions and success criteria, and it emphasizes the importance of student understanding and ownership of learning for any teacher striving to improve their instructional clarity and ultimately student outcomes, this book is a must read. As we wrap up today's agenda, 
Our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Dr. Jesse Wilcox for sharing his expertise and to you, our dedicated listeners. Please stay connected with us on Instagram at ECSD Learning and subscribe to this podcast. We hope that today's episode has sparked inspiration for meaningful connections in education and encouraged a thoughtful approach to assessment practices. As you continue your journey of growth, may you find fulfillment and impactful connections. Thank you for listening to the Learning Curve ECSD podcast.